Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mahenna. We have another episode of Matbakh for you. Today we have Chef Wissam Mas'ud, the Egyptian chef who is doing incredible things in Egypt. This conversation is hosted by Afikra's Tony Tahan, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you weren't hungry before, you're going to be hungry afterwards. Okay, enjoy it. All right, well, well, we'll get started because I want to get as much out of this conversation and spend a, a lot of time with you. Uh, thank you for joining us. We have a special guest, uh, Wissam, Chef Wissam Masoud, for those who are just joining. He's the co-founder and uh, chief operating officer of the Food Lab. Previously, he was the executive chef and partner of the Chef's Market Restaurant in Cairo, Egypt. His restaurant won numerous awards for its focus on product quality, menu creativity, and exceptional service during its opening year in 2014. Since 2013, he has served and as the host and instructor of the cooking program on CBC, Sufra Matbakh 101. Uh, this program strives to teach viewers not only recipes, but techniques and product knowledge. So Chef Wissam, welcome. Tony, thank you so much for uh, for having me. Yeah, and so for our viewers, uh, where are you calling us from? My my walk-in closet, uh, <laughs> Cairo, Egypt. In Cairo, nice. Yeah, you type that in Google, you know exactly where I am. Yeah, yeah I've heard of it. Yeah. I like to start off with knowing a little bit about you before the chef, before uh, sort of where, take us to where you grew up, what was your childhood like? Um, and then we'll get into the culinary stuff. So, I mean, I have uh, four brothers. I'm the middle child of, of five boys. Um, my parents are Egyptian. Uh, my, uh, my mother is an educator. and My father was um, a financial uh, 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 CFO of a number of uh, oil companies in, in Saudi Arabia, but not the kind that you put uh, or use for refineries, but the kind you put in your cooking, so vegetable oil. My older two brothers, um, they're considerably older than I am, uh, five and six years. And then I have two younger brothers who are, you know, one and two years younger than I am. They're all doctors and engineers and professors at uh, at, at very esteemed uh, uh, institutions. So we're an overachieving family. Um, yeah. So that's why that's why it was it was natural for us to sort of uh, uh, my mom to really push us all into the medical field, especially me and my two younger brothers. Uh, what was unnatural was my early uh curiosity um mm. for food hospitality the culture behind food and the history behind food which i started out pretty early on uh, i blame barbecue sauce for that um i mean Wait, you know, why, was, why why barbecue sauce because so i used to love so I, my eighth birthday was catered by hardy's okay uh okay. this is 1988 in over saudi arabia and uh, and this is it was about the month or two that they had launched the mushroom and Swiss. So yeah, mushroom and Swiss is a lot older than everybody thinks. <laughs> and uh, it was the first time I tried it, and I have to douse it in bar- barbecue sauce because I love barbecue sauce so much. It's like my favorite mm-hmm. thing. Mm. So I wanted to recreate barbecue sauce. So I would pour over my mom's uh, recipe books and just try and figure it out. I'm like, what the hell is cinnamon? You know, uh, what's a clove? And uh, and yeah, I, you know, I. I, I burnt a few fingers and ruined a few pans and messed up the kitchen a bit. But like, that was, that was really it. My, my dad always encouraged us to cook. My mom encouraged us to cook. I mean, it's five boys, right? So we got to learn how to feed ourselves as well. She can only do so yeah. much. And so um, you're eight years old and this is in Saudi Arabia, right? This is Saudi Arabia. Yes. Yes. So what cookbooks did your mom have? Oh, the you're- one that sticks out in my mind. So there was, 
the there was oh this was from the 70s right so it was all tattered yeah. and torn but it was a cookbook about the secret recipes of restaurants so like you had the big mac sauce in there you had like the kentucky fried chicken and you know uh all that all that good stuff so i would you know read through that and what's a tablespoon and that sort of thing one of the other things you know when i was doing in school was uh writing restaurant reviews the zagat guide had come out and i read an article in the newspaper and i was like oh that's really that's really cool. Why isn't there a restaurant review book for Khobar Saudi Arabia in the 1980s? Well, the answers, the, the question answers itself, but I decided to write it and I had a 15 point rating system and everything. Teachers would pull me out of class to, you know, on, around uh, just before the weekend say, hey, where do we where do we take our families for, for the weekend? So I have always loved I've always loved restaurants, I've always loved food, the restaurant industry, that sort of thing. So naturally, it made sense to go into medicine. Uh, <laughs> I know. And I wanted to ask you about that. But before we leave the question about your childhood, I wanted to ask, growing up, did you have a sense of, you mentioned Irish cuisine or American cuisine. Did you have a sense of these national identities around food? Oh, yeah, How absolutely. National identities play out. No, absolutely. So, you know, it's like, oh, what are we eating today, mom? She's like, well, I cooked you guys Indian food. So here's some biryani and here's, you know, some some uh, 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 chicken chicken tikka. Uh, another day it would be like, well, you know, we're eating lobia and roz and mulchia and kofta and that sort of thing. And we're like, oh, mom, come on. Can we just have hot dogs? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Egypt, Egyptian cuisine wasn't well loved in my house, uh, with the exception of a few dishes. Mulchia be one of them. Mm. Uh, but my mom used to make it in a very particular way that when I moved to Egypt and really interacted with Egyptians on a, on a daily basis for, for university, I was surprised that the way we ate mulchia was, was, was pretty uncommon for the metropolitan Egyptians. So uh, that was actually really interesting. So how, uh, I'm curious uh, as well, like how does, other than luchie, what are the iconic dishes in your mind that represent Egyptian cuisine? Kushari, number one, top of the list, like in there with a bullet. Uh, so definitely kushari, uh, obviously luchia and... So Egyptians have a very special style of feta, the way is so rice, super spicy, garlicky tomato sauce, like you can get heartburn just looking at it. Um, <laughs> and uh, and once again, the toasted bread. So bread is, you know, if I had to, yeah, feta, feta, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff and oh, so uh, a good sweet, friend of mine, Rafael, will get really mad at me for not mentioning food with I got to mention food with like, Ameya. you know, that stuff's on there. This is a question as, you know, as someone who loves to cook as well. And I want to sort of pick your brain because I, I listened to a podcast, an interview you gave, and you almost poetically talked about sort of uh, how to straddle or how to walk the fine line of authenticity. And I wanted to get more of your philosophy or your theories on how do you stay true to a dish, true, uh, but also like give yourself the liberty to reinvent so one, one way to sort of, um, it's you're playing defense, right? Um, somebody's going to come to you and be like, oh, well, you call this an Egyptian dish, but, you know, Egyptians don't use uh, uh, ginger in their cuisine. They mm. may say that. We don't use ginger. That's actually, a you know, a Saudi, South Indian kind of situation. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I can come back to them and with uh, a 14th century cookbook, Kenza Fawad Fumo, and they're like, uh, actually, dude, here's a recipe for ginger and beef, but not only that, with also green apples. So here's the thing, we can, we, there's an Egyptian precedent for that sort of thing. So, but I feel that that type of conversation to have where you have to defend your cuisine mm. on a 
purely intellectual level is doesn't add anything to either of our lives, right? Mm, uh, mm. To me, nor the person who's challenging me. So mm. the, what I always try and talk about is the authentic, authenticity of feeling. So if mm. I want to feel like I'm eating macaroni bilbashmel, there's a certain textural component that I have to stick to, okay? Mm. That I have to deliver, even if I replace the 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 the, the bechamel with the cheese, right? Like, and I make a squeaky squishy cheese and a crunchy bechamel. Like, as long as you get the flavor is delivered, close your eyes, you get mm. the flavor, you get that the 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 textural uh, elements, and then you're left with that emotion of wow, this is. You know, my mom cooked a great, you know, tray of bechamel sauce or bechamel, macaron bechamel. I'm going to down it right now. Mm. Um, so it's authentic, authenticity of emotion. And to have that authenticity of emotion, uh, well, you have to have it first. You have to have lived that experience. And you have to use every tool at your disposal as a, as a cook to deliver that uh, uh, in the final plate. Sometimes you have to walk a guy through how the dish is supposed to be eaten and stuff, but... At the end of the day, they're supposed to, you know, I, I get very happy when when somebody's like uh, comes up to me. He's like, "Dude, I had this dish. You cooked it. It was fantastic. I never thought that you could present X in in that sort of way, but it immediately tasted familiar. But I don't know from where. That for I me, I'm that. like, perfect. Thank you very much. Like, I know where I you tasted that. before your mom's kitchen, but that's that's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and. Well, that's, that's actually, uh, you're a brilliant chef. You also design and curate menus. What are some of the uh, sort of um, considerations that go into your mind when you sort of, tr to translate these feelings into a restaurant environment, into a menu uh, that people are having outside of their family's kitchens? All right, there's a lot more moving parts. I mean, without looking into the economics of how a restaurant business should run and your food cost and your ingredient procurement and all that good stuff. But, you know, you got to look at the other side of the coin, which is the customer, right? Um, what kind of experience is he meant to have? Um, so when I would get a brief from a client, uh, I'd ask him, like, what kind of restaurant are you going to do? And he's like, oh, I'm going to open a cafe coffee shop. I'm like, well, how do you how do you want him to feel? Mm. Do you want him to just stuff his belly and then head out? Or do you want him to live a sort of experience and, and not necessarily be tied to the food, but be a customer of how the place makes him feel? Mm. And that's cooking at a higher level, right? You know, we're not cooking just to, to, to fill bellies at this point. And, uh, and normally the, the clients that I end up working with are the ones who are like, listen, uh, we want the guy to come here every day and feel like this is his, his place, right? Uh, so they were like, okay, well, let's give him an experience that he can't get anywhere else. And part of that part, not all of it, part of it comes from the food. And we translate that to the servers and we train them on how to introduce dishes and, and, and you know, different methods of serving and all that type of stuff. So uh, it's, it's led to some very interesting creations. Um, and whenever I get to sort of spread my or flex my culinary juices a little bit. I like yeah. to infuse a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of humor um, hmm. or an inside joke. And hmm. I'm okay if, you know, a hundred people don't get it um, as long as I get it. And maybe there's like one other guy who's like, Oh dude, Hey, by the way, really cool. What you did by putting, you know, this on this. And then, yeah, that was nice. So uh, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into creating a restaurant experience. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's fast food or fine dining, but you got to think of the customer first. How, they, how you want them to feel while they're eating, while they're on their way there, and when they're on the way out. 
in in one of uh, the interviews with you, you hit a, a something that like is very important to me. This sort of trend in so many restaurants um, that sorry that beeping is my dishwasher. I'm just gonna open it. Stop beeping. Uh, you you spoke to something that is very near and dear to me. This trend in many restaurants to um, try to and I'm going to again use these quotes, elevate food in a way that's very, for lack of a better term, like gimmicky. You talked about like putting gold leaf on a steak. But what oh I love that you said that you like wanted to put gold leaves on, I think it was kushari, right? Yes. And so yeah. like, that's very important, I think, in the restaurant world to sort of value these, not only dishes, but also ingredients. You mentioned earlier, fulim dammas. What role do you see yourself as a restaurateur to highlight and put a spotlight on these uh, more humble dishes that don't have um, sort of global attention? I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a lot harder to sell um, on a menu. It's a lot harder to sell um, chicken livers than it is to sell um, uh, Wagyu beef. Uh, Wagyu beef, some stuff just sells itself. Uh, you know, anything with truffle oil on it, just, yeah, that's a no-brainer. It's going to sell. Um, so what what I try to do is I work with suppliers and sort of get a, a very good quality, start with very good quality ingredients, reliably supplied, reliably sourced, and then uh, cooked in a very interesting way, packaged in an interesting way. And, and then I have to go out and personally sell the dish myself. Like I, you know, visit the table and I'm like, you know, did you guys try the, you know, chicken liver with hazelnuts and, and prunes? And they're like, hazelnuts, prunes, chicken livers. I'm like, you know what, try, I'm going to send you one. Let me know how you feel. Oh, I don't like chicken livers. I'm like, neither do I. That's fine. I'll send it to you anyways. <laughs> they eat it. They mop, And I send, I always send an extra roll of bread with it. So uh, I can always tell if they mop up the rest of the sauce with the bread, mm. then I know we're in, we're in good shape. And yeah, usually the plates mm. come back clean come back and be like, oh, we've never had chicken livers that way. I'm like, well, next time have it this way. And the fruit does this and the hazelnut does that and all that good stuff. So you you have to be an ambassador for the ingredients. You have to be an ambassador for your own dishes. Um, and, it, and and it's not a price war. It's it's a quality war. It always will be a quality war. You got to keep on talking about how your quality is good. Not better than the other guy. The other guy might be doing great stuff. I'm good. You need to try it. And if you like it somewhere else, great. Go to him and tell him I said hi. Mm. Um, so that's the philosophy I should always try and follow when, when dealing with lesser, um, with less attractive ingredients. And, and you know, I tr try to put a twist on it so it's interesting for the adventurous people to be like, hey, I wouldn't give that a shot. And, and they get to try it. Can I, I want to ask you uh, to the extent that you could describe some of your sourcing process, like given uh, sort of uh, the, not only like the climate catastrophe that we're living in today, like how, like how do you do sourcing uh, for your restaurants, uh, for your clients when they ask you that, because I'm sure that's a whole other world that many of us who are not in the industry don't have an appreciation for how much work goes into that. Yeah, and and uh, and, and as much work as I put into it, there are people on the payroll who actually, this is their full-time job, and they really, uh, you know, they they hit the pavement, right? You know, they're they're just knocking on doors, uh, trying to find a reliable supplier of sweet Genovese uh, basil, for example, locally mm. grown. Mm. Um, so I, I I have a good relationship with a number of uh, local producers of um, pro vegetables, chicken, uh, beef, that sort of thing, and we work together. 
right? So I may walk up to the, talk to the butcher and be like, hey, listen, man, I, do you have any, could you get me some dairy cows? Hmm. And he's like, uh, why do you want dairy cows? I'm like, I really want an old dairy cow that's no longer producing milk, but like, that's the one I want. They're like, why? The fat is all yellow. I'm like, exactly, that's exactly what I want, right? Um, so I take that and, you know, we age it and then we cook it and then we can say, you know, this this dairy cow didn't die in vain, right? You know, we actually hmm. it gave its life to feeding uh, millions of humans and now it's feeding, you know, you 10 people. Um, but there's, there's an appreciation. I always have an appreciation for, for products of all age and all sources. So if it's camel meat, camel meat's great. It has a use. It has a, a correct framing. Uh, so you want to frame ingredients when you're putting it on a dish, uh, you know, and, and I also have suppliers just give me a call. Hey, we said, listen, I have salicornia. I'm like, dude, well, how much do you have? And I'll use it. Um, and then I put on many people like, what the hell is Salicornia? I'm like, well, if you've ever been to Davos or any Greek restaurant in Mykonos, that's that green stuff that's off to the side that tastes super salty, but with some squeeze of lemon on it. Yeah, it's great. I love your sort of creativity unleashed. Uh, you're clearly a very creative chef. And I think that stems from the fact that you not constrain yourself uh, with, you know, talking earlier about uh, authenticity. You're also a mentor to a lot of uh, aspiring chefs. Uh, I want to ask you, who are your mentors? Um, uh, number one. I know to put you on the spot like that. No, no, that? no, not at all. Not at all. Because they're, 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 it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big thing, you know, to, 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 to mention your mentors and to be able to give them the credit that they are due. Um, and even, and it doesn't mean that they're older than me by, or, or by, 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 by a, by a large gap, but it means that they've taught me. They, these are the people that I can go back to and ask for advice and they freely give it, right? They guide and, and help. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased and blessed to, to count Mustafa Rafai, the uh, co-founder and chief culinary officer of Zuba restaurants as, yeah, yeah, I'd consider him my mentor. He'd tell you no, we said he's my mentor <laughs> and me and him, we have this argument. At the end of the day, we have such a great relationship and I'm, you know, I'm very valuable. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that valuable uh, relationship. So Mustafa Rafai definitely at the top of that list. Um, uh, my first uh, executive chef, who, who, the first guy I worked under, uh, Ayman Samir, here in Egypt. Uh, great guy, you know, to this day, you know, I still call him chef. I just can't call him Ayman. I just call him chef. That's, that's what's up. Yeah. Um, so those two guys, and then, you know, uh, outside of the culinary world, uh, just my brothers, really, my brothers, uh, have really taken on that, that mantle after my, my after my father passed away around 20 years ago. Um, let's jump into the rapid fire Q and a, what are you, uh, what are you watching slash reading right now? I just finished watching both ride along movies with, uh, with, uh, the short funny dude and ice cube uh <laughs> i try not to i try not but if i'm gonna watch tv uh or watch a movie i actually try not to watch anything uh, that's food related because I, I i i need you sort of need to refresh your brain right every now and then and as much as i love food and all that type of stuff i can't i can't uh be of a one-track mind in that way or else I will be repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Marco Pierre White. Uh, that's because he's still around. Um, but uh, if that's not an option and, and Chef Marco decide, declines my, my request, 
then it would be um, Chef Fernand Plant. Um, so he's the guy who trained a lot of the giants of French cuisine. So Paul Bocuse and, and Joël Robuchon and so on and so forth. Very cool. Uh, what is your guilty pleasure midnight food of choice? Oreos. What dish reminds uh, what dish reminds you most of home? Um, stuffed potatoes with uh, minced beef. Um, so another question and start putting in your questions uh, was about Um Ali. Uh, what's the exact way and that, uh, to make Um Ali or what is your way of making Um Ali? My way of making Um Ali is uh, I like a drier Um Ali. I do not like Um Ali that has that's swimming in this like coconut flavored stuff. And speaking of coconut, I don't like coconut. So I remove the coconut from it entirely. Oh, interesting. I love raisins, but I don't like my raisins in the uh, in the omali. So the way I like to eat it is you you have this uh, you have this puff pastry. It's already cooked and crisp, and I steep it in the milk, and the milk is flavored with cardamom and uh, brown sugar, a little bit of honey for sweetness, as well as uh, lots of cinnamon because I love cinnamon. I, I don't put any clove and I don't put any nutmeg because it's not Christmas. And uh, and then some, some uh, you know, that goes into the oven with some fresh cream, lashes of fresh cream on top. And I garnish it with crushed, uh, crushed toasted hazelnuts. That's that's me. That's perfect. Like for me. No, don't add chocolate. Don't add any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, maybe you want to add vanilla. You don't really need to. It's fantastic stuff. Um, well, I think that's a fantastic note to end on a nice, sweet note. Uh, Chef Wissam Saud, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you, Tony. I appreciate it. Likewise. Yeah, and I hope we get to meet sometime in person. Well, come down to Cairo and we'll get you that. Uh, we'll get you. What did you want to eat again? The, the kibbeh. kibbeh. Okay. And luchie. You know what? You know, I well, that's going to happen. I have yeah. Luchie. <laughs> that's going to happen. Have right, a good thank one. you. Nice chat. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. <laughs>